this morning we started looking at what I, uh, oh yeah, anybody need a handout? Pastor said he doesn't take handouts. Um, as I've told you, he has a line for everything, y'all. You stole that one from... Okay. <laughs> All right, anybody else uh, get your hand up and they'll get one to you. All right, so we started looking at six questions to be ready to answer at the, the judgment seat of Christ from the, the book of Job. And so tonight, if you would, let's turn once again to, to that book. And we are uh, we're talking about the time when we will have our ultimate accounting. And I, I want to just be clear, we, we didn't go into a big, long explanation this morning about what the judgment seat of Christ is, but the judgment seat of Christ has to do with our, our works. And, and usually, as Baptists, the only time that we ever really talk about works or we emphasize them is when we're talking to lost people. And we're, we're letting them know, hey, it's our works. It's, that's not the ticket, man. And, and of course, we should. That we should talk about that. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9 talks about the fact that it's, it's not of works. 2 Timothy 1 9, it's not according to our works. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Galatians 2.16 says, It's not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And, and so maybe because, uh, because of all of that and how the Bible talks about our works not having a role in salvation, I don't know, maybe that's why we, many churches, and I'm sure this one might be uh, the exception to that, but because works don't have a role in salvation, I, I think what happens to us sometimes is that thinking spills over into our works after we're saved. Because it, it, would, uh, it would appear that at least a, a lot of Baptists almost have the idea that maybe we shouldn't talk too much about our works. And yet... Wow, y'all, the New Testament is actually filled with information and instruction concerning good works in the believer's life after we're saved. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, right after those verses that we always quote, it says that God has ordained that we should walk in them. That is good works. Titus chapter 3 and, and verse 8 says that Pastors are to constantly affirm them, good works, and goes on to say that believers are to be careful to maintain good works. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18 says that we are to be rich in good works. Second Timothy 3.17 says that we are to be truly furnished in them. Titus chapter 2 and verse 7 says that we are to be a pattern of them. Titus 2.14 says that we're to be zealous of them. Hebrews 10.24 says that we are to provoke 
others unto them. James 2.18 says that we are to show our faith by them. 1 Peter 2.12 says that the lost world ought to be able to behold our good works. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be revealed whether our works were good or they were bad. But other than that, the New Testament really doesn't say much about our good works after we're saved. Obviously, this is a big thing. And, and, and what we're trying to do today is just kind of get our minds wrapped around the fact that the reason that we can go through that litany of verses where God says some majorly strong things. I, I know we were going really fast through those, but listen, God was saying some monumental things about our works. And the reason that he does that is because he knows that our reward in eternity and our inheritance in the kingdom is going to be based on those works. And man, you young people that have got your life in front of you and, and you're right here in front of me in spitting distance, and I appreciate it. <laughs> Listen, man, if you can get your head wrapped around the fact, I'm glad that you're saved. Oh, that's awesome. But I do want to say, your works matter. And I want to say to everybody else <laughs> that's in the room, our works matter a bunch. Not in salvation, but after salvation, God intends every single one of us to work like crazy to show Him what we think He's worth. Okay, so that is our little introduction. Let's pick up where we left off this morning with these six questions that we need to be ready to be answer from the book of Job. Job 26 and verses 1 through 4. Let's just read them again to get them in our, our minds. Some of you may have been working in another part of the building or sleeping in this morning or something like that. But Job answered and said, How hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? To whom hast thou uttered words? And whose spirit came from thee? And again, for those of you that weren't here, maybe as a reminder to those of you who were here. I said we're in chapter 26 as these random questions are being laid out. When we come to the next chapter, Job 27 and verse 1, it says, Moreover, Job continued his parable. In chapter 29 and verse 1, Moreover, Job continued his parable. And we went this morning to Psalm 49 and verse 4, where we learn here that the Old Testament definition of a parable is that it is a dark saying. And we talked about the fact that it needs the light of the Word of God to be shined on it. We, we sometimes refer to that as comparing things spiritual with things spiritual. And what's happening in that process is the light of God is exposing truth that wouldn't otherwise be understood without God's light shining on that. 
And so that's how we get to the place to where we understand that these questions that are being asked in Job 26, the only people that have ever existed that could possibly answer these questions are those of us in the body of Christ. And so this morning we looked at question number one from Job 26 and verse 2. How hast thou helped him that is without power? And we talked about how that all of us at one point were without power because we were without God. And the issue here is evangelism. And the point of this question at the judgment seat is basically this. God is going to ask each one of us, with the throngs of people through the course of church history that will be at the judgment seat of Christ. God is going to look at us individually and ask us, who is here because of you? I don't know how that question hits you, but wow, it gets it all in perspective. It's a very sobering question. And we went to question number two, also from Job 26 and verse 2. How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? And we saw that the arm is a, it's a part of the what, y'all? It's a part of the body. Okay, so now we're talking about somebody that has had the power of God, make them a child of God, and therefore a part of the body of Christ... But when they come in as little babes, they come in with absolutely no strength. And he asks the question, how savest thou the arm that hath no strength? And the point here is God is going to get it to the point to where we understand as he asks us, who here is like me because of you? And now we'll pick up where we left off this morning. Uh, You'll notice it says down a little bit lower tonight's message. Um, Actually, we're picking up in tonight's message right here with question number three. And this, this third question that we need to be ready to answer at the judgment seat of Christ is in Job 26 and verse 3. And the question is, how hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? Now, now the first question had to do with lost people who had no power. The second question had to do with saved people who had no strength. This third question has to do with people in general who have no wisdom. And listen, do you realize tonight that just about every person that we are going to come in contact with, the people that we work with, to a large degree, even the people that we church with, the people that we live near or are related to, they fit into that category. People with no wisdom. And what we learn from this question is that God has an expectation of us now that we're saved. And that is that we will provide counsel to the people that we rub shoulders with by imparting to them His 
wisdom. And this is such a, a, a big part of our lives. It's such a big deal to God that when it's all said and done and the proverbial portly woman has finished her song and we stand at the ultimate accounting at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be asked to account for what we did to impart His wisdom to others. Not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. And I make that distinction, of course, because Paul makes that distinction in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he, he contrasts man's wisdom with God's wisdom in the whole chapter. And his concluding statement is in the last verse of the chapter. Listen to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16. Watch it now. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we, that's all of us that we talked about this morning that have experienced the power of God in our life, but we have the mind of Christ. And, and listen, y'all, do you know why he can say that we have his mind? It's because we have his book. And do you understand that this book is the mind of the Lord. And as the mind of the Lord, contextually in this chapter, it is the very wisdom of God. So all of us that are saved, we have it in our possession, the mind of the Lord, Amen. the very wisdom of God, And rather than that being just a little trinket or some little side benefit of salvation, God sees it as something that we have been entrusted with. And one day, at the ultimate accounting of our stewardship, we will give an account for whether or not we exercised His mind or His wisdom. Because you see, it, it kind of goes like this. God knows that the, the people all around us, this is not a condescending statement, it's just a, a fact. God knows that all the people around us don't get it. He, he knows that when it comes to, to family relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, He, he understands as the pastor was imitating me this morning, that people don't have a clue about what God's mind is and how it works when it comes to the family structure. And so because they are functioning without his wisdom, their homes are jacked up. And when it comes to how employees uh, function with their employers and employers function with their employees. People don't have the mind of the Lord. And so they're frustrated and they're stressed when it comes to, to finances and money management. Again, people have no wisdom and so they're drowning in debt and they've got financial pressure that they live with morning, noon, and night, which just adds more pressure to their marriage and to their job and virtually every area of their life, all because they're functioning apart from God's wisdom. And 1 Corinthians 2 
And verse 16 tells us, we've got it. (laughs) We have the very thing that they need. And one day, y'all, God is going to ask us what we did when they sought our counsel. And some of us might be thinking, well, I think I'm safe on this one because nobody ever asked me for counsel. Which leads to an even more assaulting question, and that is, how could we possibly be functioning according to God's wisdom in our homes and at work and our finances around a world of people who have absolutely no wisdom and it not prompt them, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, to ask a reason for the hope that lieth within us. In other words, how could people void of God's wisdom see us functioning according to God's wisdom and them not seek our counsel and then not ask, hey, what, what's different about your family? And how do you come to work with that attitude that you come with every day? How do you do that, man? You make the same kind of money I make. How do, why does it seem like yours goes further than mine? You know what I'm saying? You would think in a world void of wisdom that people functioning with the mind of the Lord in those areas that, wow, this ought to be the means for evangelism, man. And so if they're not asking our counsel, it might be an indication of an even deeper spiritual problem, and that being that though we have the mind of the Lord in our possession, it might just be that the mind of the Lord is not possessing us. But presuming that they do ask our our counsel, what counsel do we give them? Because Job 38 and verse 2 says... Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? And you know what the the question teaches us? That it's possible to answer people's questions and give them counsel that confuses them. Because rather than our counsel exposing them to the light of God's wisdom, he he says we, we darken it. Because rather than being able to direct people to the source of true wisdom, we lack the knowledge of where to take them in the Word of God. And we end up spitting out cute little sayings and and homespun anecdotes. And we darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. Listen, y'all, to give people God's wisdom, the cold hard facts are we got to know it. (laughs) And to know it, we've got to seek it. We've got to study it. We've got to hide it. We've got to live it. 
But somewhere along the way, we've got to learn it, man. And you know, I, I don't want to go to seed on the ministry of discipleship. <laughs> but we might as well go to seed on the ministry of discipleship. Because this is how we get the wisdom of God. And so this third question is the, the issue of influence. And I want to suggest to you that we all go the rest of our lives knowing that one day at the judgment seat, the Lord is going to look us in the eye and ask, who was able to see that my mind, my wisdom, so dictated how you lived that they just had to ask you about it? They sought your counsel. And then we find question number four in the middle of Job 26 and verse 3. And it's this. How hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? How hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? You know, it's an interesting thing to me. Uh, the generation of people, and I'm, I'm sorry to be the old guy to use this, but hang with me for a minute, okay? But the generation of people that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, there was a little saying. Any, anybody around my age, do you remember the little saying, tell it? There you go. A lot of old people around you guys there. You guys didn't have a clue, did you? Okay. But the saying was, tell it. Like it is. And, and what happened is all of those people grew up and want people to tell it like it is in just about every area of life. But they don't like it when someone tells it like it is when it comes to God. <laughs> and, and what God lets us know is that in the last days, that's not just going to be something that's outside of Christianity. It's going to be what's going on on the inside. I know you know these verses, but 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. Tell it like it is, brother. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they, those teachers, shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. He's saying in the last days, even in the church, People don't want to face the truth. He's letting us know it won't be popular. People will look for churches that tell them what they want to hear. That's I don't know you very well, but I respect you because I know that this is a church that plentifully declares the thing as it is. We talked this morning about the incredible value uh, of that, but that is not characteristic according to Second Timothy chapter four. That's not characteristic of our day. People don't want to hear the truth. But one of these days, listen, we're all going to give an account. Not not just the pastor. We're all going to give an account for whether or not. Listen, not only that did we 
declare the thing as it is, but as Job 26 and verse 3 it says, whether or not we plentifully declared the thing as it is. And I want to say this to y'all. Make no mistake about it, y'all. God is really big on truth. <laughs> and you know why that is? There's a, a, a very logical reason for it. The reason for it is, is God doesn't just possess truth. He is the embodiment of truth. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. And again, he's not talking about something he possesses. He is it. And what that means is when we violate the truth or we wimp out on the truth, we violate his person because he is truth. And he takes that very personally. Okay. We know that. Okay. But just as surely as God is big on truth, he's just as big on love. And the reason is, God doesn't just love. He doesn't just possess love. He doesn't just show love. He is the embodiment of love. It is his very essence. First John chapter 4 and verse 8 says, God is love. And so when we violate love, just like we do when we do truth, we violate love, we violate his person because he is love. And once again, God takes that very personally. And yes, we need to understand that God wants us, according to what we're going to give an account for at the judgment seat, He wants us to give people truth and to plentifully declare the thing, whatever it is, as it is, and we'll be held accountable for that. But don't miss that He wants us to do it in love. I want you to notice this question that we're going to be asked at the judgment seat. Notice in Job 26 in, in verse 3. Is that there? You got it on your sheet. I want you to notice that the question isn't, have you plentifully declared the thing as it is? That isn't the question, is it? The question is, how? How have you plentifully declared the thing as it is? Oh, because a lot of us are doing really good there, weren't you? Yeah, man. I'm just a black and white person, man. I just tell it like it is. I, I hear that, yay, all the time. I'm just a black and white person, man. And, and somehow people that are black and white, I love you. We need you. It's a wonderful thing. But, but I, I do want to say, if you're justifying leaving those compromisers beaten and bruised and bloodied in your wake, because you're one who, I just tell it like it is, brother. Well, my counsel to you would be, save it. We don't need it. I, I know. Ephesians 4.25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying... Yep, there you go. I just tell it like it is. Wherefore, putting away lying, 
speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we're, we're members of one another. The truth is, y'all, we ought to be able, because we're part of the same body, we ought to be able to speak truth to each other. And sometimes, y'all, sometimes we need people to speak truth. Amen? But don't forget that 10 verses earlier, Ephesians 4, 15, God told us to speak the truth. How? In love. Because the goal is to not leave people bloody. It's to help them, verse 15 says, to grow. I've never seen somebody, black and white people, and bruise and bloody them. And that person that they bruised and bloody go, hey, thanks, man, I want to grow now. Uh-uh. It doesn't work like that. And of course, <laughs> Jesus is certainly the greatest model of this, right? John 1.14 says that he was full of truth. I love that. But I also love that it doesn't stop there. <laughs> he was full of truth. And he was full of grace. And do you get that? He He wasn't. 50% truth and 50% grace. What a nice balance that is. No. He was 100% truth. And at the very same time, 100% grace. Listen, the people that are all around us, in church, our families, the neighborhood, school, work, whatever, they need the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Plentifully declare the thing as it is. Man, give the truth uncompromisingly, unashamedly, unwaveringly. But for God's glory's sake, y'all, give it lovingly. Amen. Give it graciously. Give it unoffensively. Listen, the truth will offend. <laughs> that goes without saying, man. But we just got to make sure that it is the message that is offensive and not the messenger. Amen? Amen. Boy, we need a major dose of that. Listen, nobody ever more plentifully declared the thing as it is. And the things... All of the things that, like Jesus did, nobody ever cut it straighter than he did. And I love Luke chapter 4 and verse 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And so the issue on question number four has to do with our, our handling of the truth, truth-telling. We're, we're a spokesman or a spokeswoman for God. And the point that we need to have up on our radar as we go through the remainder of our lives, the question that we need to make sure that we're ready to look the Lord in the eye and be able to answer is, who had to face the reality of my truth? Because you spoke the truth to them in love. 
who had to face the reality of my truth because of how you plentifully declared the thing as it is. You spoke the truth in love. And so they had to face that. Question number five. Job asked in Job 26 and verse 4, To whom hast thou uttered words? To whom hast thou uttered words? And I want to, as we talk about this, I want you to understand that there are words that God most definitely wants us to speak. John chapter 3 and verse 34 says, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. And, and listen, he has sent every one of us to utter the words of the gospel to every creature. And at the judgment seat of Christ, when it comes to giving an account for the gospel, we will be asked, to whom hast thou uttered words? Again, I'm not trying to be you know, all up in your grill. But when was the last time that you actually gave the gospel to someone? It's the power of God unto salvation, man. Look for every opportunity that you can to utter the words that God became a man in the person of Christ, died on the cross for our sin, was buried, rose again the third day and took the penalty of our sin and he ascended to the Father and he's coming back. Okay, how long did it take me to say that? A good 20 seconds? And you know what, y'all? There's power in those words. Get the words of the gospel out every chance that you get, man. And... Just pray that God will open doors for you to do that. Since I've reinvented my world and I'm doing a lot more traveling, you know, getting to the airport and Atlanta traffic and parking, and then you have to pay for all of the parking and blah, blah, blah. So I've been Ubering. You know what? It's been the greatest thing in the world for me because I'm around lost people and I have a captive audience, man. But rather than just do the gospel on them, I'm praying that God will open doors of utterance in all my words, y'all. How fun it is to just find the way to be able to get in that conversation and utter the words of the gospel. But, man, we got to recognize, y'all, we're going to be held in account for whether we, whether we uttered the words of the gospel to people. We'll also be held in account for, did we speak the words of truth and love to our spouse, to our children, to our grandchildren, to other family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates? But just as surely as there are words that God wants us to speak, there's also a negative connotation to this question in Job 26 and verse 4. Because there are words that God doesn't want us to speak. And we will be asked, to whom 
hast thou uttered words. Don't ever forget that Jesus said in Matthew 12 and verse 36, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Would you hang with me just a sec? Proverbs 18 verse 8 talks about words of gossip and slander. To whom hast thou uttered words? Romans 16, verses 17 and 18 talk about words of division. To whom hast thou spoken words of division? Philippians 2, 14 talks about words of murmuring and disputing. To whom hast thou uttered murmurings and disputings? So there, there's, there's words that God most definitely wants us to utter, the words of the gospel to lost people, the words of truth and love and edification to saved people. And there are words that God doesn't want us to utter. That we've just looked at. But, but before we get off this, listen. There, there's another dimension to the words that we utter that we also need to prepare ourselves to answer. And that is... Listen, the words that we utter, not necessarily from our lips, but from our lives. And and this is what's wrapped up in the, the New Testament word in our King James Bible, the word conversation. Uh, do we have, uh, Philippians 1 and verse 27, watch this. Only let your, here it comes now, your conversation... Be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But he's talking to us here about our conversation. And, and what he's talking about here is not what comes out of our lips. He's talking about the fact that our life speaks through our lives. Do you understand something, y'all? We can go back since last Sunday. For the last seven days, and we can go back to the time you're saved. I'm just wanting to get it right here where, where we're living. Do you understand in the last seven days, you've been communicating with God through your life. No, you've been communicating with what you said, but you've also been communicating with how you lived. We are through our life carrying on a conversation with him and telling him, this is what I think you're worthy of. Through our lives, we're also communicating with every person we come in contact with. Through our lives, we are uttering words to the people around us. We are holding a conversation with them. Again, by the life that they see us live... We're also telling them what we think Christ is worthy of. Do you understand that concept? That's our conversation. And it's just as real as everything that comes out of our lips. It's what comes out of our our life. And, And so the issue in question number five is the issue of testimony or conversation. Okay, just hold on to the point for just just a second, okay? But listen, y'all, 
the point we need to be prepared to answer here. You remember this morning, that first point that we talked about? Who is here because of you? Do you understand what the point here is? Who is not here because of you? Who's not here? And wow. You know how many people are going to go to hell because they live next to a Christian? Or they worked with a Christian? They were related to a Christian? And one of these days, y'all, we'll give an account for what we said with our lips and what we were saying with our life. Who is not here because of you? I don't know which one's more sobering. (laughs) Who's here or who's not here? And then question number six, the last one, the one we've all been waiting for. (laughs) Also in Job 26 and verse 4, whose spirit came from thee? Whose spirit? came from thee. Do you understand at the judgment seat of Christ, y'all, we're going to give an account for what spirit was actually exuding from our lives. And, And biblically, there's only three possible answers to the question, okay? First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 talks about the human spirit. Revelation 16 and verse 13 talks about the unclean spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 talks about the holy spirit. And I want to say to you, listen, we are unlike any group of people that has ever lived on this planet. Because when God saved us, what He did is, according to to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, The moment we called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, we became a partaker of the divine nature. What that means is God planted His Holy Spirit inside of us. We became the temple where the Spirit of God lives. And because of that, would you please hang on this? We're closing in. We've begun our descent. Okay. Listen, because of that, We have on a daily basis the glorious privilege of being filled with the Spirit. In fact, according to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, we have been commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We have the glorious privilege on a a daily basis, y'all, Because of we became partakers of the divine nature, we have the glorious privilege of walking in the Spirit. In fact, in Galatians 5.16, we have been commanded to walk in the Spirit. And I think that sometimes we get the idea as Christians, okay, I'm saved now, and yeah, I know... 
I really should be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, I know, I know. I know. It'd be nice if I, yeah, if I walked in the Spirit. And we miss the fact that one day we're going to look our Savior that we claim to love, we're going to look Him in the face. We'll look Him eye to eye. And as I said this morning, we're going to walk back through the years and through the months and through the weeks and through the days and through the hours and through the minutes of our lives at the judgment seat of Christ. And we will need to answer a very simple and sobering question from Job 26 and verse 4. Whose spirit came from thee? It ain't just something we need to get around to, y'all. It's the essence of the Christian life. This is a—I don't want to get us off, but I also want to make sure we're striking brain here. This thing of the spirit-filled life, y'all. This is where it is, man. I, I, you know, I hear people say, and, and well-meaning people, okay. And again, I'm, I'm not attacking anybody that you said it wrong. But I think it's an approach. I think it's a way of thinking. People talk about, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus died for me, and so now I'm going to live for Him. Okay, that, that that sounds real Christian and real spiritual. But it's not biblical, and it's not scriptural. You cannot find a place in that New Testament where God will ever tell you that he wants us to live for him. He's real careful with his words. We all believe that every word of God is pure, right? He's never going to tell you that he wants you to live him. You know what we have been called to do, y'all? Die. So that he can live through us. Hello? That's not semantics. You understand that? Because me, doggone it, he died for me, and so now I'm going to live for him. What that does is resorts to the flesh. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 10. You don't have that verse, but would you listen? He says, always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. That's us. Always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest through us. He's not interested in us living for Him. He gave us the Spirit so that He can live His life through us. You say, well, what's, what's the difference between us living for God and Him living through us? Uh, about 40 years. 
You know why I use that term? Nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Living for God. (laughs) Whose spirit came from thee? That's the essence. When you wake up tomorrow, don't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and say, God, I'm going to live for you today. Come before your God. Say, God, I surrender all that I am. And I'm going to take up my cross and die. So that your life can be made manifest through mine. And you know what happens? As we've emptied ourselves of ourselves, then he's free to walk in all of us, like he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 through 16. He wants to walk in all of us. And listen, when he walks in all of us, you know what we do? We walk in all of him. But it's him walking. It's his life. And we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's what flows out of our life. Not because we're living for God, but because we're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, okay, I'm going to shut up. But I do want our parting words to be at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to matter. And he's going to ask, whose Spirit came from thee? You know what? As we pillow our head every night, these six questions might be some good ones for us to ask before we go to bed on a daily basis, just keeping ourselves prepared for our ultimate accounting at the judgment seat of Christ. And man, I I, I hope that I hope that you've been helped from that. Uh, that we've covered. I'm going to turn it over to the pastor, but I do also want to say thank you for the privilege of being able to be with, with your folks. This is a great church. I, uh, there is a spirit in this church. I, and again, you probably just come and you take it for granted, but mm, there's a spirit that's here. And then I pray that you'll never l- lose it. And, and I hope that you never forget Yeah, man, we can't wait for Jesus to come. But we do need to prepare ourselves for our ultimate accounting before him, Pastor.